our studio in Charlottesville, Virginia, this is VQR's The Thread. I'm Paul Reyes, editor of VQR, and I'm speaking with our associate editor, Alex Brock. Alex co-authored, along with art director Jen Boggs, our mapping column on space junk for the spring 2020 issue of the magazine. I'm catching up with Alex because, as is the custom on The Thread, we like to fill readers in on any recent developments in a particular story. And it seems as if the landscape of space junk, as strange as it is, has gotten even stranger in recent weeks. Alex, thanks for checking in. Happy to be here. So when we first published this piece, we were attracted to this idea that there was just so much stuff flying around Earth's orbit, satellites for the most part, but also pieces of satellites, debris and and spacecraft for that matter. And not only was there this risk of these incredibly expensive pieces of equipment crashing into each other, but that human-occupied rockets were also endangered. And that even just sending something out through the Earth's orbit into outer space had become a bit of a gauntlet. Uh, So, Alex, could you briefly summarize what that original mapping column was uh, intended to address? Uh, Sure. Uh, It was intended to address the problem of uh, orbital debris, uh, more familiarly known as as space junk. Um, There are more than 100 million man-made objects that currently orbit the Earth, moving at about seven times the speed of a bullet out of a gun. Um, mm. As we just mentioned, most of this is uh, is made up of discarded spacecrafts or their components, and much of the debris is currently functioning satellites. Just shy of about 30,000 of these objects are tracked regularly by space surveillance networks, but uh-huh. that, of course, leaves the vast majority of it not currently monitored. Presenting the problem then, which was in the intention of the column to address, that there's an increased risk of collision. All right, and so what's happened since the publication of the piece? Well, there certainly is a growing uh, realization of the kinds of problems that this situation poses. Uh, Potential collisions we've already mentioned. Um, Astronomers here on Earth have some trouble doing their work because of their obstructed view into the deeper realms of the final frontier. And there even are concerns about complications related to our ability to travel into deeper realms of space, um, simply because we're unable to navigate the traffic jam. In addition to this growing realization, there's also more debris. So even just this year in May, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, granted SpaceX permission to launch 12,000 satellites uh, into orbit. And SpaceX has filed paperwork to launch an additional 30,000 spacecraft over the coming years. Uh, So that's much more than is usually commissioned by a a private company or national government. So there are agencies tracking all of this. Each and every object that's out there is flying at thousands of miles an hour. That's right. And the ability to track them in real time is restricted to those larger objects, sort of about the size of a softball. And the rest of the tracking is done by statistical predictions. So do the collisions ever take any of the agencies that are monitoring all this stuff by surprise? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, just this past March, uh, such an incident occurred. Uh, It actually wasn't recognized as being the result of a collision with space junk until August. It took about five months for the data to trickle down and for experts to do what they do. Uh, but this was a Chinese military satellite that collided with a small piece of debris from a Russian rocket that had launched back in 1996. Now, how small are we talking? It's, it was between about four and 20 inches wide. Yeah. And a, a prominent expert in the field described it as the first major confirmed orbital collision since February of 2009. So, Yes, certainly this will take everyone by surprise sometimes. The majority of these collisions are between larger spacecraft, such as the International Space Station, and very small pieces of junk about the size of one cell of, of E. coli. 
Wow. That's amazing. It really is. I mean, you know, th- these, these really small objects, uh, you may wonder, can it really cause that much damage? You know, what's the big deal about a cracked window? But part of that has to do with the fact that it only causes a small amount of damage due to prior protective measures being implemented before launching the mission. So extra shielding can be installed on spacecrafts, uh, more fuel uh, to perform maneuvers that would be required to avoid a collision, things like that. It, it's estimated that these protective measures could amount to 5 to 10% of total mission costs, which, as you can imagine, often range in the hundreds of millions of dollars. All right, so what are the prospects of cleaning any of this stuff up? The vast majority of activity in on the problem of space junk is related to monitoring and tracking. It's true, I think about three quarters of companies uh, in this sector are, are focused on that. But there are some creative and innovative thinkers out there that are trying to develop ways of actually cleaning it up. Uh, the European Space Agency did announce the creation of the world's first such initiative uh, called Clean Space. And it should be ready to go here in the next couple of years. Now, how are they going to do this? Some people have proposed like really large magnets to alter the trajectory of sort of particularly threatening pieces of debris. Yeah. Um, others, Elon Musk, uh, en route to Mars on his mission to, to go to Mars, said that he would be happy to multi-purpose one of his spacecraft to pick up any <laughs> problematic pieces of debris. So people are trying to... He'll take the trash on his way out. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. Exactly right. Um, but of course, this would require, first of all, the ability to locate these smaller bits of debris. Yeah. Uh, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak also launched a company recently called Privateer that aims to be the Google Maps of space to, to actually obtain precise locations for all orbital debris. Well, now, the the names that you're dropping suggest, Hmm. I guess, the obvious, that this has got to be incredibly expensive, something that might even be beyond the wherewithal of private corporations, right? Definitely very expensive. Uh, The question about private sector versus public sector involvement is kind of interesting. Uh, With the increased attention on this problem, there are now more than a dozen private companies involved in space junk-related activity. Uh, And there are, of course, in the public domain, there are more and more countries developing their own national space programs. Uh, But there's some tension in the relationship between these two. On the one hand, governments are reluctant to initiate the cleaning up of space junk. This is because interfering with another country's satellite could be construed by the affected country as a defense or military operation. Right. And this could destabilize sort of international relations between the two countries. So many in government, at least here in the United States, have deferred to the private sector to take the lead uh, when it comes to the space junk problem. Uh, But uh, conversely, in the private sector, companies and their investors are pretty nervous to enter this field without guarantees from those governments about future contracts for operations and services, precisely because the activity would be so expensive. Well, yeah, and I imagine when if a country gets involved, if, if, a, if a particular government gets involved, one of the main issues is that they're spending a lot of money cleaning up junk that isn't necessarily theirs, which is to say their responsibility. So there's a, a, a really interesting issue of sovereignty here. That's right, and it sort of has been a black hole in 
international affairs, actually until just this week, early November of 2021, the United Nations uh, announced the establishment of a committee devoted to establishing agreed upon norms for behavior Mm -hmm. in outer space. It's actually the first movement in space policy since 1967. So was there any concern, or I guess the better way to ask is, has the intensity with which space junk is being monitored intensified now that you have billionaires promoting space tourism? Uh, or are they not are they not flying high enough to be at risk? Certainly, I, th- I, I think it's hard to ignore the influence that r- recent sojourns by billionaires having a play day uh, has on the focus on this problem. It's actually even expanding beyond tourism. Uh, NASA launched a program recently to spend as much as $400 million on up to four space stations in partnership with private companies wow. to make a sort of a public, yeah. And just in October, late October, uh, Blue Origin, the private space company founded by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, announced the plans for Orbital Reef, which is going to be uh, a mixed-use space station in low Earth orbit for commerce, research, and tourism. Amazing. And he even went as far as to say this would allow anyone to establish their own address in orbit. So I think people... <laughs> Yeah, people have their eyes on on more uh, permanent uses of outer space. You too can have a PO box <laughs> above the clouds. There, there's actually a not insignificant amount of my mail that I would be happy to direct to such <laughs> a location. We can add junk mail, space junk mail. There we go. Exactly. Perfect. All right. Well, Alex, thanks for catching us up. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Uh, happy to talk trash. This episode of The Thread on the perils of space junk revisited the mapping column from our spring 2020 issue. You can read that story at vqronline.org slash spacejunk or order a copy of the issue at vqronline.org slash store. Robert Armigal produced this episode with support from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab. Ellie Bashkow is our engineer. I'm Paul Reyes. Thanks for listening to The Thread.